the end of our little mini-series within Matthew on the Easter week and Resurrection Sunday. And I don't know about you, but one of my favorite things that restaurants do, there's a restaurant back in Guelph, they do them up here too, they'll have the half-off appetizer night, you know, you can come in at five o'clock and get half-off apps. So like for 20 bucks, you can get like five apps and everybody at the table gets a bunch of appetizers and you just kind of select from all of them. Well, that's a little bit about what our text is like today. Matthew's going to go through the description of the resurrection. And as we go through the description of the resurrection, I have about eight observations that we can get out of the text of Matthew on the resurrection. And I don't know what God might speak to you in. You might pick up two or three of these observations. You might sample from all eight of them. I don't know. Or maybe there'll just be one that you really dig into. But that's what this message today is like. As we look at the account in Matthew of the resurrection, we get all of these little glimpses where Matthew is pointing us towards a deeper meal, a bigger meal. Matthew, as we looked at last week, describes the events. He describes the Passover. He describes Gethsemane. He describes the crucifixion. Here he describes the resurrection. But in his description, he's pointing to what is accomplished in these things. And so we're just going to look today at the text of Matthew and consider eight things that Matthew points us towards that God wants us to see Jesus is accomplishing and how we should respond to the resurrection. Let's just pray, and then we'll look at Matthew 28, verses 1 to 10. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you that we get to come to this day to celebrate, to rejoice, to just be in awe of what you've accomplished in the seal of your promise with the resurrection, that this is real, that this is going to happen, that this is promised and fulfilled. Father, we just thank you for that, and we ask that you, by your Holy Spirit, you'd open our hearts, open our minds to your word. And let us rejoice in that as well. In Christ's name, amen. So Matthew 28, verses 1 to 10, we have the description now. Now after the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said, Come see the place where he lay, and then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee, where you will see him. I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. So what emerges out of this text? What, What is Matthew pointing towards simply as he just describes the resurrection? That's Matthew's main intent here. 
That's the purpose of the author, is to describe to us the historical event of what has taken place, that Christ has risen from the dead, that he is alive, that this is something that's never happened before. He is the first fruits of the new creation, and he will never die again, and we inherit that same eternal resurrection. That's what he's trying to describe here. But as he's describing it, as I said, there's at least eight things that he points us towards. And so I'm going to go through these eight observations in the text and and see what lands on us today. The first one being that there are no obstacles to the power of God. The text open, it says that there was a great earthquake. It's by God's power that Jesus was raised from the dead. We can't explain it away. It can't be pinned down to a neat biological process. He was dead. He was buried. And on the third day, he raised and rose again, and people didn't believe it. People didn't believe it at that time. People don't believe it now. People wouldn't have believed it before, because this is not something that happens. People don't normally come back from the dead. And Matthew emphasizes the power of God being involved here, as he does at the crucifixion, with an earthquake. The power of God shakes the earth, and an angel comes in power. The angel appears like lightning and clothes white as snow, it says in verse 3, and the guards are knocked out just looking at him. I mean, maybe we need some help with our imagination. As I was reading this, I was thinking, anybody see uh, Age of Ultron? No, not Age of Ultron, the first one, the Avengers. Not the end game, the one before that. What was it called? Oh, the one where Thanos comes. And you remember they're fighting, they're fighting outside the city of Wakanda, and all the aliens are coming, and Thor is off, and he didn't have his hammer, and then he gets the new axe hammer thing, and then suddenly when the tide is against everybody, all the heroes are defeated, Thor comes in this big lightning ball and he lands in the middle of the army and just like obliterates everybody, right? Like I need, so, I need Marvel to give me a better imagination of what an angel coming down into the garden, closed like lightning, guards comatose just by his appearing, right? This is the power of God, okay? It's not Thor, it's not CGI, it's an angel coming in lightning clothing and just laying out the guards, It's the power of God. It's the earthquake. It's the angel. It's the lightning. And what is incredible here is that there are no obstacles to the power of God. What can we take here that Matthew is pointing us towards? That if this is the power of God to raise Jesus from the dead, death, graves, stones, guards, if God raised Jesus from the dead, that power is at work in us. Ephesians 1, 19-20 says... And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might? What kind of might? That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. That's the power of God at work in our lives. That's what Paul says. The power that God resurrected Jesus with is the power that he is working toward us in our lives. So whatever obstacle there is in your life that you think is somehow difficult, do you think that obstacle in your life can withstand the power of God? Because this is the power working in his people. Resurrection power. This power that we see on Resurrection Sunday. That's the power we receive. So first of all, there's no obstacle that can withstand God's power. Secondly, we can take away the reality that there is no dread 
The women are terrified at the arrival of this angel in lightning and the guards fainting away. But the angel says to the women, do not be afraid. Why be afraid? Because God is in this powerful act for them, for their benefit. There are many things that cause dread or terror in our life. We have deep down fears that could overwhelm us if we don't see that God is at work in our lives with his power. God is at work in your life for your good and his glory. Just like the angels at Jesus' birth, they come to the shepherds and the shepherds fall down in fear of the angels. And what do the angels say? They say, don't be afraid for we bring tidings of great joy. That's what the angels say when Jesus is born. And then the angel here, when the women come to the tomb and they're terrified because this angel arrives and the resurrection has happened and Jesus isn't there, he says the same thing. He says, don't be afraid because I have good news. And he says the good news right away. I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified, but he is not here for he has risen. And so there is no dread. There is no obstacle to the power of God. There should be no dread in God's power working in our life because God's power at work for us is good news to us. We should not be afraid. There are no obstacles and there is no dread. Thirdly, there's no body in the grave. The angel says, he is not here. Jesus does not belong in the grave. He's not old news. He's not left behind in the past. He's not just a figure from history. He's not simply kept alive in the memories of the disciples as some more um, wrong theologians <laughs> try to argue, for lack of a better word, wrong. Jesus is not raised from the dead simply because the disciples keep his memory alive or they keep his teaching alive. Lots of that's a stoic teaching, actually, that we are immortal by the accomplishments of our, of our life. And that's not what is going on here. That would not have terrified anybody. That would not have caused any furor in Palestine. That would not have caused the uh, Pharisees to invent stories in order to make people believe that he wasn't actually raised from the dead, that his body was stolen. If, if all it meant was that people were keeping his memory alive, there is no threat to that. That's not what took place here. No, he is alive. The tomb is empty. The tomb of every other great prophet and guru of every other religious figure is still occupied either by their bones or at least by their dust at this point. But there's nothing in Jesus' tomb. There is no victory for death. It says, for he has risen. Jesus has risen in a new kind of power, in a new kind of body. This is an eternal resurrection. And you might think as you're reading, as I did at one point in my faith, I was reading along, it says, Jesus is raised from the dead. Yeah, but didn't he already do that for Lazarus? Like Lazarus was raised from the dead too. Yeah, but wait a minute, Lazarus had to die again. Right? Jesus is, is raised into this new glorified body to never die again, even in human form. Poor Lazarus, he's in the tomb, he's dead, he comes out, he's like, this is great, but now I got to do it all again? Like, thank you? I guess? I don't know. You know, I, I'm sure God was merciful to him in his second death. But, but Jesus is not in the tomb because there's victory over death. He has this new glorified body, the first fruit and there is no doubt, as he said, he said, come and see the place where he lay, the angel says. So there's no doubt that the tomb is empty and that there's victory over death. 
The Old Testament prophesied that this would happen, and Jesus said it would happen. He gave them the sign of Jonah, the rebuilding of the temple in three days, and see, this is where he was, and now he has gone. There's no body in the grave. There is no victory for death. There is no doubt that this took place. Nobody is trying to hide anything here. People looked and saw the evidence and believed. And as the Gospels were being circulated in the years after the resurrection of Jesus, there were thousands of people who were witness to this. Lots of people could have discredited it. And yet, we know the truth. The evidence was so obvious that the Pharisees actually had to bribe the guards to spread alternative stories to try and suppress this one. So in this description of the resurrection of Jesus, we see there's no obstacles to the power of God, that there is no dread for his power working towards us in our life. There is no body in the grave. There is no victory for death. There is no doubt that this has taken place. But there's also no silence. Matthew points us to the response of the women, and there's so much we can learn here from their response. He says, then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. In other words, this news is not just for you. You have this good news that Christ is risen. And the angel says, go and tell other people because he's done it for others. When you have believed, go and tell, pass it on, pass on the gospel, pass on the good news of his resurrection. And not only of his resurrection, but of your future presence with him. We have the most incredible news in the universe, and sometimes it seems like people need to pry it out of us with a crowbar, doesn't it? Our, our co-workers, you know, see us coming out of church, you know, you go, to ch- you go to work on a Monday, and a co-worker comes up to you and says, I think I saw you coming out of that church by the lake on Sunday. Do you go to church? Are you a Christian? Uh, uh, they have really good coffee. Um, I was dropping off my neighbor's kids. Uh, my kids go to Sunday school. I, yeah, I mean, sure. Yeah, okay, I guess. Right, like, sometimes we have the best news in the universe, and, and we have trouble getting it out. You know, or we're sitting there having a coffee with a friend, and they're wondering, how do you go through your illness? How do you go through the grief that you're feeling over the loss of a spouse or a child? How, do you, how are you dealing with this, you know, situation in your marriage or whatever? And, and we say everything except because Jesus is in my life and I have the power of his spirit at work in me? Or worse, they're asking you how they get through the loss of their child or the grief they're going through or the illness they're suffering and we don't say, you have great power waiting for you if you understood the good news of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The angel says, go and tell this news. It is the best news. And honestly, sometimes even though we should be expressing it openly, people have to pry it out of us instead of us going and it being on our lips every day. Sometimes it just feels like Christians have to get tricked into telling people the best possible news they could hear. But not these women. There is no silence. They got the good news that Jesus was resurrected, that the tomb was empty. They go quickly to tell. Also, from the text, we see that there is no absence. It says, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. Matthew points us towards this incredible resurrection reality that the rest of the New Testament continues to fill us in on is that Jesus is not absent, 
that he is alive and he is here with us by his spirit, that as he left, he sent his spirit to be with us. The good news of the resurrection is not just that the king is resurrected and he's seated on his throne and he rules over all things as he should. The good news of the resurrection is that you will see him. There is no absence of his presence. The good news is is that fellowship is possible again with Jesus. This Jesus is alive and he is present with us and that relationship is possible. The Christian faith is not just a set of ideas. It's not just a set of beliefs or truth claims or signing up to a statement of faith at a church or following religious duties. The good news of the Christian faith and of the gospel and of the resurrection is that we are no longer absent from the person of Jesus Christ. There is no absence. He is present with us. There you will see him. He will be with you. He's there. If you're a Christian, you will know that this is the most central reality of your faith. I mean, we know all the truths of the scripture. We have all the promises of God. We have all of those things. But when the going gets tough, when our life is there in the valley, in the ditch, in the gutter, what is the one thing every Christian holds on to? Christ is with me. He's with me. He's present. He's real. I can feel him. I can talk to him. He speaks to me. There is no absence. There is no sorrow. It says they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. Now to me, as I was reading this, if, if this line doesn't sum up a Christian response to the gospel, I don't know what does. This is, a, this is a great summary of the reality of the very complicated Christian emotional life. They departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. Fear and joy at the same time. That's the Christian life, right? Fear and peace, suffering and rejoicing at the same time. The Christian life is actually pretty emotionally complex. There's some ways in which coming to faith and trusting in the good news of this gospel simplifies our lives, and there are other ways in which understanding the gospel and the reality of the resurrection incredibly complicates our lives. What do I mean by that? The power of the good news of this resurrection event is the power of joy in spite of fear. In fact, joy in spite of fear of the implications of what is actually taking place here. Because when you come face to face and contemplate and consider the empty tomb, you come to know and believe that the resurrection is true, then what happens is then you have to just suddenly accept that it's all true. All this stuff about God, all this stuff that the Bible says, all of this stuff I've been learning in Sunday school, all of this stuff that Paul's been talking about up on the stage on Sundays, If I accept that the resurrection is true, that the tomb is empty, that Christ is alive and present, then that means it's all true, and suddenly our life gets really complicated. Suddenly the universe has gotten much bigger. God really does exist, and he is a God that will not be ignored or set aside. He's a God that insists on being known and related to, a God who created the universe, who commands things of you that are more than you seem capable of, a God in your life who is eternal, a God in your life who is righteous, pure, and true, a God who hates sinners, and you're a sinner, a God who presses against your selfish comforts and offers you something far better, but also unknown and frightening, a God who has authority over us in all things. When you accept the resurrection, all of this stuff suddenly becomes true. And it's terrifying. It's frightening. If you lived in that nice, comfortable little world where the universe was just a wound-up clock 
that was operating on natural principles and none of it ever really meaned anything. That's a real simple life to live. But when you accept the reality of the resurrection, all of a sudden, your life gets really complicated because God is all of these things and a thousand things more. A clockwork universe that has no presence of God is not particularly terrifying. It's actually soothing to imagine that we can eventually know how it all works if we just build a big enough atom smasher or we just build a big enough telescope and we get our math accurate enough very soothing. This is the comfort of scientists and atheists and agnostics. It's very soothing that there is no God who is awesome and righteous and pure and terrifying. I mean, maybe there's some lingering existential discomfort, wondering if any of it means anything, but if humanity has proven anything over the last several thousand years, it's proven itself capable of distracting itself from that existential discomfort. We can distract ourselves from the idea that maybe our life is meaningless, and that's far preferable to admitting that there is a God and our life is full of profound meaning. But a universe with a God like this, a universe that raises Christ from the tomb, that demands to be known and to know us, that's terrifying. And so these women are terrified, but with great joy. It's a cause of great joy because we are not called to a spirit of fear. It says God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control in 2 Timothy. And Romans 8 says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The idea of God is so terrifying to creatures such as us, and yet because God is so good, those women run filled with joy. Because he has used his power to defeat death and he desires a relationship with us to offer us adoption as children and to be present with us. And so we live in that tension of both fear at the awesome reality of God but also immeasurable joy that he is good and what he has worked for us. First Peter 1 sums it up. He says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You see, this resurrection is terrifying to us, but also so filled with joy. But that's not the end. I think I'm on like point nine now. There's no standing still. Not only is there no fear, but there's no standing still. It says, so they departed quickly. The joy propels them. The joy that they feel makes them move. They ran to tell the news that they had. There was no second guessing in these women. They're pressing forward with the good news that they have. And as they depart, Jesus meets them, it says in verse 9. As they move forward, Jesus is there ahead of them. Jesus is going ahead of you. He will meet you. As you go forward with this good news, with this gospel, Jesus meets you. How often is our Christian life stuck? We figure, well, we've arrived, right? I mean, I, I understand the gospel. I've accepted Christ into my heart. You know, I've committed myself to this Christian life, and we just figure we're there now. And there's no urgency to press on deeper in the Christian life or in greater acts of faith and obedience. And, and often it's not even as there's no urgency to press on, but we even have excuses not to press on. Remember in Matthew chapter 8, some potential disciples of Jesus said, I'll follow you wherever you go. 
And Jesus said, foxes have holes, but I have no place to hang my, lay my head at night. And the scribe thought, mm, maybe I'm a little hasty. Maybe I don't want to follow you if, if something bad's going to happen or I'm not going to get the life I expected. And then another came forward and said, I'll follow you, but first I have to go and bury my father. And Jesus says, this is my paraphrase, following me means leaving the spiritually dead life behind. You have no attachments to that life anymore. You have to go forward. And that scribe thought, hmm, you know, I, I want to follow Jesus, but I got some excuses not to. But here, in the description of the resurrection, the text of Matthew, even in the actions of these women, tells us that in the receiving of this good news, there is no fear, but there's no standing still. There's no just sitting where you are, staying stuck. Paul says of his own relationship with Jesus in Philippians 3, he says, not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Jesus Christ has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. The Christian life is a life of forward momentum towards Jesus. And as you go forward, like these women did, as they ran from the tomb, they came and they encountered Jesus. As we press forward, that's where we find Jesus. He is ahead of us in our Christian life, keeping us going. And then Jesus, when he meets them there, he says, keep going and I'll meet you in Galilee. You meet Jesus as you move forward and then he moves forward. Just like the people of Israel following the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud in the wilderness. God is going before, and we are pursuing him in our life with him. Finally, there's no reservation. It says, they clasped his feet and worshipped him. These women treasure Jesus above everything else. They have no reservation in worshiping the risen Jesus as he should be worshiped. They are not worried about decorum in a society where decorum between genders is extremely important. They are not worried about what people will say or what gossip will go around. They don't care about being on the ground. They just want to worship, to weep, to feel, to be present with Jesus. There is no reservation in their response to the risen Savior. What stops us from worshiping Jesus the way we should? Worshiping Jesus like this? Well, there's a couple of different answers. Maybe we haven't met him as our resurrected Savior yet, and so we don't worship him because we haven't met him. Our hearts have never really treasured him and cherished him for what he's done. Or secondly, maybe we've met him, but our love towards him has grown cold. We love our own dignity in front of others more than we love the rescuer of our souls. We love not being embarrassed in front of our friends. We love being accepted by others. We love our own dignity and self-sufficiency. We love holding him sort of comfortably at arm's length so he doesn't upset our quiet lives too much. You know, what's interesting about this idea of no reservation in the women who respond to Jesus is that that's not how Jesus reacted when he saw us. Even when Jesus saw us in our sin, Jesus didn't reserve himself from running to us. Jesus didn't preserve his dignity in our rescue. Jesus lowered himself first from presence with the Father in the Trinity and the Holy Spirit. Jesus lowered himself from that perfect communion with himself. He lowered himself into the abuse and the beatings and the scorn of our creation. 
that he came to save. And then Jesus lowered himself again to the most shameful death. He preserved no dignity on the cross. He came not to be served, but to serve. He came to wash even his disciples' feet, if that's what it meant for them to understand his rescue of them. So when we preserve our dignity in our worship of God and Jesus, in our treasuring of Christ, when we try to preserve our comfort and our decorum amongst our friends so they don't think we're a little bit too crazy, instead of worshiping our Savior and this good news, we're not reacting towards Jesus the way he reacted towards us. It's pictured for us in parable form in the father who running to see his lost son who had been left the family, he pulls up the skirts of his robes and he runs down the laneway. There's no reservation from God as he approaches us. And these women have no reservation when they encounter the risen Savior. They grasp his feet and worship him. It reminds me of King David and the arrival of the long absent ark of the covenant from Israel. In 2 Samuel 6, 13 to 14, it says, And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David takes off his kingly regalia, his kingly clothes, and he wears a simple linen robe bound with a belt, and he dances passionately in the parade of the ark, so passionately that the daughter of Saul later on rebukes him for uncovering himself shamelessly in front of the female servants. Like, let me clarify, David wasn't naked, okay? The Bible's clear. David was not dancing naked, but he might have been dancing in his underwear. And David doesn't care because of his joy at the return of the presence of God, the return of the favor of God. David says, I don't care about my royal decorum. I've come to worship God. And these women don't care that they're on the ground. They don't care what it looks like. There is no reservation in their worship. I'm not saying you have to dance in your underwear. In fact, I hope you don't. But Matthew's description of the resurrection, of the response of these women, he's telling us something here in this description. He's, he's pointing us towards something that goes deeper in Scripture, a response that we should feel in our hearts to a risen Savior. The treasuring and the cherishing, the passionate rejoicing, the awestruck worship that comes at every encounter with Jesus. There's a lot of little appetizers there in this description, isn't there? Just as, just as Matthew is describing the resurrection and what the angel says and what God has done and what the, how the women respond, I think there's like 11 of them there. That there are no obstacles to God's power. That there's nobody in the tomb. That there is no dread. That there is no fear. That there is no absence. That there is no reservation. I don't know what little tidbit caught you there. Maybe it was only two or three of them. Maybe it was all 11. I don't know. But in this description of the event, Matthew is not attempting to fully explain everything about the resurrection and what it has accomplished and our response to it. But in the description, there are pointers to us. If we go back to the text and we just see what God has done, what has taken place, how the angel responds, how the women react, 
We get all of these pointers towards deeper meaning of what has transpired in the resurrection. In the resurrection, God has sealed his promise. There is no obstacle to his power, though there is no need to fear for those who trust him. There's rejoicing, there's good news, there's forward movement into the life Jesus called us to. There is unashamed and unreserved joy and worship because of who he is. Because why? There is nobody in the tomb. He is risen. He's risen indeed. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we get to come to it again and again, Sunday by Sunday, but especially in this season, to consider the Passover, to consider Gethsemane, to consider the crucifixion, to consider the resurrection, to just rehearse for our hearts the reality of what Christ has done, and then to see how we should respond. Father, I pray that today, tomorrow, the days and weeks to come, our hearts would continue to resound with praise and adoration for what Christ has done for us, and that we would have no reservation, that we would worship as these women have shown us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.